And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hey, everybody, and thanks for joining us on The Sustainability Story. I'm Matt Orsag with CFA Institute, and our guest today is Andrew Watson, founder and director, Rethinking Capital. Uh, I think we've been remiss, Andrew. We haven't had any accountants on uh, yet in The Sustainability Story, uh, but hopefully we're, uh, we're, we're remedying that now. So tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got here, and what is Rethinking Capital? Sure. Thanks, Matt, and thanks very much for inviting me. So I'm a lawyer by background. When Arthur Anson had a law firm at the back end of the 1990s, I headed one of their practices just outside of London. And I'd go to dinner parties and say I was a lawyer and people would familiarize themselves and say, well, what sort of lawyer are you? But actually then I found this passion for intangibles in 2001. I would probably best describe it as an obsession for intangibles. And over 20 years, I've been really doing this path of trying to understand what intangibles are, how do they create value, et cetera. So Rethinking Capital is the end of that story, really. The last five years, I began to collaborate with two people from Western Canada. They had pieces of the puzzle that I didn't have primarily around accounting for intangibles. And so we've gone from intangibles into accounting for intangibles into accounting for sustainability. And that's been our journey. And the beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms, Matt. So we found a treasure trove down the end of the intangibles path. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, before we get into kind of a broader discussion, is there one you know number of facts that kind of helps frame the the discussion we're going to have for the audience on on, on where things are with ESG sustainability accounting uh, and intangibles that you want to frame for us? Sure. First of all, I'd say we're new to the whole sustainability area. Our first experience was on a project for Nova Nordisk back in 2017, where we were asked to actually work out how to get their reputation on the balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a sort of twist for us. And really, that was the first entry we had in sustainability. Yeah, You need a PhD to understand the complexity of ESG versus impact versus double materiality and sustainability accounting, et cetera. As a lawyer, it's incredibly confusing. We use the analogy of a crossroads, Matt, that um, you know, something like about 20 years ago, people began to realize that financial statements were not showing the full value of a business, its assets or its liabilities. And we think that the people got to a crossroads and to the left-hand fork was marked technical accounting and double entry bookkeeping. And, there, and, and it looked like an impenetrable forest as far as the eye could see. And the right-hand fork was marked everything else. And it looked like a nice open meadow with cornflowers. Everybody went right. Everybody assumed that accounting could not solve the problem. And, it, and now there are, I don't know, I was told by WEF, something like 350 different philosophies on how to solve the problem. But when you go down the right-hand fork, ultimately you realize there's no way through. It is literally, it's a swamp. Mm. And there is no way through. We found a way 
and it wasn't easy to find through the forest. It takes a long time and you've got to follow some really sort of intricate paths, but ultimately we found a way through the forest. And we now see it as being that on the other side of the forest is a, you want an image, a, um, a lovely open meadow with meandering rivers and snow, snowy peak mountains. It, it is really clear over there that accounting can play a big role in this discussion. So that helps tee up kind of the next broad question of, of where have we been, where are we, and where do you see us going around accounting? For you know, where do we need to go? Uh, mm. you, you you said a little bit a little bit about where we've come from. Where do we need to go to better account for these things? Yeah, I think that Emmanuel Faber put it really well in his interview last week, Matt, for uh, Economist Impact. As a business person, where Emmanuel's coming from is actually, we got to make this simple for decision makers. We, you shouldn't need a PhD to understand how to take a decision around net zero, net zero, for example. And Emmanuel pulls out some really interesting themes in there of simplicity, common language, interoperability, and also this sort of tight integration between ISB or, or uh, you know, financial statements and this sustainability perspective. And I think Emmanuel's hit the nail on the head of, I have to understand the user as an informed user of business information. They cannot need a PhD to understand the acronyms and concepts. Right. And I think this is where we believe it's going to go. It, it, it's all now about simplicity and harmonization. And we can see a path as to how it can be done. One of the things we talked about before we met for this podcast was just the incentive structures mm. and how they're not not fit for purpose to get us where we need to go. And that's something that that it seems every podcast I do, it's a topic that comes up. You know, the incentive structures, whether it's for policymakers, whether it's for investors, whether it's for accountants, aren't where they need to be to tackle the sustainability issues, whether it's climate or or biodiversity or what what have you. Talk to us a little bit about how you see that incentives being upside down or out of whack and, and what, what can we do to change that? Sure. It's interesting when we did our work, you solve a problem, then you only stand back afterwards and ask, what does it mean? I mean, it did take us, take us until about April last year to really sort of take that step back. And let me give you a concrete example on upside down incentives. So at the moment, if you're BP and you're investing 100, 100 million into your net zero transition and repurposing several thousand of your 10,000 engineers, from the first creative spark on how to actually solve a problem, a complex problem like carbon capture, accounting practice writes those off as a cost. Right. And you may well capitalize something in a piece of plant and equipment way down the line, but it'll be a it'll be depreciated. So we've got a penalty for doing the right thing. We've got a penalty for doing what society is now demanding of BP and what they're committing to do. Whereas climate risks and liabilities are actually treated as externalities. So you're rewarded for doing nothing. Mm -hmm. That's just bad accounting, actually. You know, this is even defying the standards of accounting uh, for those practices to continue. That's within a company, but interesting, and I, I won't go too much into it, but then we began to do some work around with Chatham House in London around subsystems like soil health. And in soil, the current economic equation is known as the deal between the devil and the farmer. Mm -hmm. You optimize, you maximize yield, you throw away up to 50% of the crop and you degrade soil health as rapidly as you can do. Right. And again, that's all about incentives. And it runs through all of our systems, Matt. It's bizarre. It's a strange phenomenon 
but actually there are lots of theories as to how we got here, but actually, you know, we got here, whether inadvertent or otherwise, now the bigger question is how do you get out of it? Mm -hmm. Well, how, well, how do we get out of it? How do you turn those incentive structures the right way around? You know, how do, is it, is it simply, and we'll get into the, the normative accounting question a, a little bit later, but how do you turn those in, incentives around? And, and we'll talk specifically about the issues of, you know, of climate and, and social inequity are, are some of the things you touch on in the research I've seen is, as you said, you know, an externality is, you don't count it because an externality. How do we flip those incentives around? I'll talk a bit about what we do in normative accounting to make it as as, as simple as I, as as I possibly can do. Uh, sure. So if, I, if I go back to the the BP example, <clears throat> I don't know what the number is. I haven't seen their budget for next year or this year. But let's assume that actually BP were investing that 100 million into net zero this year. We take the exact same 100 million, and rather than that being written off as a cost, we capitalize it into an intangible asset and the intangible asset it's capitalized into is the social license. Every organization in today's networked economy has a reputation. Every organization has a social license. And, and in my beginning of wisdom is the definition of terms. I created a whole logic as to what is reputation and what is the social license and how are they, uh, I use the word intertwined and we believe that they are. Uh, a, a social license is this implicit license between an organization and all of its stakeholders and society at large to behave according to social norms. And so we believe, therefore, that, that a social license is an intangible asset. And all we're doing to, ca to capitalize it is literally double entry bookkeeping. Yeah. It's uh, double entry bookkeeping. Debits and credits work the wrong work the other way around than they do in banking. So it is, uh, it's, it's credit, cash, debit, social license. And, yeah. and it's as simple as that, really. That, start, that starts to flip the incentives. Uh, and we can talk a bit more about the detail of, of the opposite side of the decision. It's, well, I was just going to say, let's talk a little bit about that. You know, I am, for good or for bad, not an accountant. I took my, back in my MBA days, I took my accounting classes like a good boy uh, and, and passed them and have forgotten a lot of that stuff. So I would imagine a lot of our listeners are in the same in the same boat. You know, walk us through, uh, and you did a little bit. You know, uh, the example of normative accounting, but how does normative accounting work, mm. and the benefits that we see from thinking of these issues as, as you said, not as a, not as a debit, but as a credit. Sure. For for the audience, Matt, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, assume a little bit of accounting knowledge. I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Let me do a little bit of validation. This is a proper approach, first of all, before I go into a bit more detail. There is a whole body of work around normative accounting, which goes back to the 1950s, uh, led by a professor from the University of British Columbia called Richard Matisic. And if anybody wants it, I've got a 70-page paper of his whole study. But essentially what normative account, accounting theory says is that value is subjective. You identify the user and the user, the, 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 sorry, the decision that user intends to make and the accounting should follow that decision. Therefore, there are many alternative fair views of an entity or a scenario. Right. What does that mean in practical reality for people listening in? I, I've never been an analyst or I've talked to a few, but I, I, don't, uh, I don't know what the role particularly involves, but I think anybody looking at current financial statements will realize they're a distortion, they're a fantasy. 
And really, they're, they're, if you look at the primary purpose of financial statements nowadays, they're actually prepared for tax. Yeah. And they're prepared, actually, to minimize tax. It, therefore, what we then do is say, well, there's all of these assets which are creating value, which are not shown on the financial statements. Let's apply this normative accounting theory to show the true commercial reality. But let's do it for a reason. We're not doing it just to be just to be clever. We're doing it because there are benefits to doing so. And they're not just in reporting or accounting. They're in real deep economic problems, like how do you get lending into these breakthrough technologies that we need to transition out of a hydrocarbons economy. Can't do that actually if you're not recognizing assets properly. And we are showing in case studies that banks will lend against early stage companies. But then the other economic imperative is we have to provide the incentives for companies to get to net zero. And if you rethink accounting, you start creating I think we're up to now 12 new financial returns, quantified financial returns from intangibles. Mm -hmm. So you're changing the rules of the game around the things that are important right now. This is not just clever accounting. It's for the reason of, you know, what's the purpose of doing it? It it actually is to solve structural problems in the economy. Did I answer the question well enough, Matt? Pat, did I? No, yeah, I, I believe so. And I wanted to, you mentioned, you know, you mentioned case studies of how this works in the real world. And so I want to touch on that is give us some examples of beyond theory, how this is working, how people are already doing this and how it can, and how this can be done. A couple examples of, of normative accounting in, in sustainability. Sure. Well, let, let's go back to those, those two examples uh, of early stage companies being denied access to finance. And then I'll do net zero with the, the first we have real real uh, projects we've worked on uh, in the sustainability area in the breakthrough new technologies area and in the second actually we're at the level of experiment just going into proof of concept in the first we worked with a business in canada that was monetizing carbon credits it was small it wasn't growing particularly quickly its community of farmers around it were you know, we're not able to actually to, to, to build this at scale. And we went into the company and we realized actually that it had two forms of intangible assets. Its first was a software platform used to manage the, the credits and to get validation from Canadian government. And the second were the carbon credits themselves, which, are, which were a form of derivative and a form of intangible. So we restated their financial statements. Uh, we went in, we identified the costs involved in creating the intangible assets. And then because there was an active market, you could actually monetize and value the intangibles at, at, you know, at fair market value, which you're, you're allowed to do under the existing uh, accounting rules. Economic benefit of that was a bank lent the organization, I think it was about $30 million, and it did a, mar- it did a, a market roll-up. It acquired an awful lot of competitors to bring more efficiency to the market. PwC signed that off. Their view was, well, if that's what management believes is the true and fair view of the company, who are we to argue? Mm-hmm. So it shows the auditors can cross the bridge. And again, it's, it's uh, yes, there's, a, there's a, a methodology here, but it's more about the benefits for companies, for management, for employees, et cetera, and other stakeholders of doing this properly. So there's the small company example, and we've got a few of those we've actually done in practice right now. On net zero, Uh, I say we're at the level of experiment. And what we're trying to show is what we call both sides of the balance sheet. 
So we're first of all trying to recognize there are huge, vast numbers of intangible assets which could be capitalized on balance sheets, which, which aren't. And let me give you the example we're using right now, Bayer AG, the company that's known for aspirin and for buying Monsanto. Mm-hmm. Um, we restated their financials and we found 129 billion of undisclosed equity by properly doing the accounting and rethinking the way that they were applying existing international financial reporting standards in practice. Mm-hmm. Restated their financials, took their analyst reports and actually, as I say, found 129 billion, which is a, a huge number for an organization that's currently capitalized at around about 55 mm-hmm. post Monsanto. Now, the interesting thing about doing that way around is that in fairness terms, if we're going to start to impose liabilities on companies such as climate risk and recognize those properly, we want to recognize the positives before we get in the negatives. Right. So we we therefore show that positive entry. Then we can start to deal with the, the net zero commitments. Uh, and if, if it's okay, I'll just do that a little bit more. Yeah, sure. So we take, I'm a lawyer, right? So I, I look at a commitment, let's say SAP today is committed that it's going to get to net zero by 2030. It's accelerating from 2050. Well, we say, what is that? Accounting standards call it a constructive obligation. Mm-hmm. It's an expectation set with stakeholders, which can be the public at large. This is right within the financial, within the um, the existing accounting standards, IS 37. So it's set a set of expectations. And we say, well, what is that expectation? It's an expectation to go from now, current emissions, down to zero in a series of steps between now and 2030. Mm-hmm. That's the commitment, that's the narrative, and the strategy and the plan and the accounting should follow that. Now, the beauty of doing the accounting consistent with that, we can use, uh, I know you know Rob Zukowski very well at Harvard, we, mm. we use Rob's numbers to, to represent the liability over time. The impact weighted accounts initiative, right? Yeah, yeah, they've done some wonderful work on monetizing impact at proper numbers of intergenerational costs of up to 356 per ton of CO2. Um, I don't think anybody else is anywhere near that number. It's certainly credible. And so what we're trying to do there, Matt, is we're trying to say in this world of normative accounting, in other words, a parallel view of a scenario, we're going to represent that as a commitment and as a plan and as a strategy and as a transition path. That's all of which is transparent to external stakeholders. And that's game changing. Where do where do you see things standing with you know we had coming out of COP twenty six a big agreement with the uh, you know the IFRS f- forming their mm-hmm. their sustainability standards board you know merging with uh, Value Reporting Foundation CDSP and others where do you see that discussion you know try and, and you know one of the things they're trying to do is especially around climate to begin with to have a global kind of baseline standard on, on accounting you know how does that jive with what you guys are doing and do you see do you see the world moving more towards a normative accounting base and are there places that are already doing that how do we see it i i see it i think again i think emmanuel faber has actually hit the nail on the head as a businessman coming into this the need for simplicity and interoperability i'm not an expert on double materiality at all, but I, I get the concept of impact on the company and impact on the environment and on society. But ultimately, when you go back to this sort of crossroads I talked about, what you had there was two 
movements and philosophies, both of which went right, and ultimately haven't found a way through to something which is simple and comparable. Right. They're both credible. They're both good philosophies. They're both very well-intentioned, well-thought-through. But ultimately, A, they can't be reconciled, and B, they're not the answer in themselves. And if they were, we'd be living in a different world by now. So what we're saying is, as very different philosophies, it's unfair to try to reconcile them. You'll just actually lose the essence of one or the other. But why don't we try and work out whether accounting, technical accounting, double entry booking can be a bridge. Mm-hmm. And that's also a bridge in time. And I'll, I'll, you know, I think time and the scale of the emergency makes time really important. Where are the view that actually this simple innovation in technical accounting can create a bridge in time, but also actually the ability to be an interoperability standard is the word I use. Interoperability, going back to the the days of when Alcatel and Siemens and Philips had all created mobile phones, and you realize without a protocol they couldn't talk to each other. Yeah. So that's what the the mobile phone companies did was to create a, a communication protocol. And we think this is where accounting can play this role of, if I'm an ESG investor, I've got my own philosophy ESG, and I've got my own tools and methodology. I've raised money as being one of those. If I'm an impact investor, I'm again part of that movement. I've got my own tools. Why try to reconcile? Why don't we build a simple bridge using accounting, the basics of accounting around which everything should be able to interoperate. And essentially people can then choose their own flavors. Yeah, you get a good you get a good standard bridge, and then you can choose your own flavors of whatever user perspective you want to take. That's where we would like to position normative accounting during 2022. That's that's where we're heading towards, and showing that it can be. No, I think that's a that's a great way to to end this discussion. I didn't know a an analogy of phone companies in the in the in the 90s and the early aughts was going to be the perfect. The perfect analogy, but I think that is that's a that's a good one. I hope people got a lot of, out of this discussion. It's something you know when when, I, when we first met, it, it's not something you know as not being an accountant myself, I knew a lot about, but it makes it makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious to see what uh, what feedback we get and where normative accounting goes in the future. Before we let you go, though, we always torture our listeners a little bit with uh, with homework with further reading. I'm going to tell them you know look up rethinking capital. You guys have some interesting information and case studies on your website, but I'll give you the opportunity. You know, what are some things you think people should be reading or listening to to understand more about normative accounting and what you guys are doing? Yeah, I, I'm. I'm really welcome this opportunity to 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 talk, Matt. I really appreciate any, anybody you know listening to our story. We've been on this road for 20 years, and a lot of it has been arduous, and a lot of it until we we actually walked into Harvard in the end of 2019 to meet George Serafim and Rob Zukowski, people didn't know who we were. So it, it is, you know, this feeling of being like an overnight success after 20 years. So this, I really appreciate the opportunity. And I'd love perhaps to come back and keep you posted on what happens this year. We've got some very big ambitions. I would begin, and I think for anybody who wants to understand today's intangibles economy, I would begin with reading a book called Futuromics. Futuromics is a book by my co-founder, Robert McGarvey. Uh, Robert's a, an economic historian and has written a very accessible book, as they call Futuromics, about a history of asset revolutions which have taken place in the history of Western capitalism. 
And it's a brilliant explanation to understand where we are in an economic cycle, because these transitions in the asset foundations of the economy, this one from industrial to intangible, mm-hmm. have happened twice before. And every time they do, the economy changes first, and then all of its rules need to be rethought right. afterwards. And, and this is where we believe there's a confidence in knowing where we are in the economic cycle. Uh, and I'll say one more thing. The reason I love it as a father of five, Matt, is it's a story of hope because it says when we begin to recognize these new assets, we leverage them for value. And if you go back to the uh, the history of the previous, the first one was the transition from um, an agricultural economy to a trading economy. Right. When they're recognized, huge change takes place, not only in the economy, but in society and culturally scientifically what robert calls higher orders of human cooperation the first transition robert specifically attributes the italian renaissance Hmm. to the transition and the introduction of double entry bookkeeping which is uh, again our president and i think for anybody who wants a story of hope in a world upside down it's a beautiful story of i love the bit that pacioli actually introduces double entry bookkeeping then his next collaboration is with leonardo da vinci who just actually written the first design Uh, for a helicopter in 1493 Uh, and it's this what can we catalyze just by doing some simple things Uh, and i say for me it's a story of hope Matt. that's great that if you would just pitch me that idea for a book i'd I'd want to either read it or write it myself but i'm glad someone else has written it so i don't have to i'll definitely be reading that anything anything else no there's a ton of materials that we're putting up on our website i'm a very active linkedin poster as well i try to make our work accessible using analogies and metaphors i've just been talking about a mexican standoff a bit like the last scene of the good the bad and the ugly if that's familiar to anybody oh yeah we try to make our work accessible as much as we can matt and it's it's not easy because it's brand new it's a whole new world of thinking and therefore we need to help people to to come on a journey with us. So website, my LinkedIn is always something that I'm, I'm posting on. So yeah, to stay in touch with us and what we're always doing now, because we're going into proof of concept is talking more actively about how this really applies in decision-making around use cases like net zero, soil health, yeah. ocean health, plant uh, kelp farms. So all of these use cases we intend to be publishing over the coming months. That's great. Well, I will certainly be keeping up uh, and I encourage our listeners to as well to follow you. There's probably a lot of Andrew Watsons around the world. So you're going to have to filter through a couple of LinkedIn profiles. But when you get to, when you get the guy from uh, Rethinking Capital, you've hit the right place. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for talking to us. I appreciate it. Wonderful. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate the opportunity. Great to talk. Mm-hmm.